And thank you everyone for the birthday wishes. It was such a surprise to walk into church and see my name on a big banner. I've never had my name on a banner before, so that was pretty, that was pretty special. Um, and thanks, Ben, for putting a yellow microphone cover on for me today. As you can tell, yellow is my favorite color. Um, and isn't it nice to have a bit of color on a day like today when people like me are dressed in black and gray in such Melbourne colors? And it's nice to have so, a pop of yellow um, and to be reminded of the sunshine that is there even if we can't see it sometimes. Um, it's Yeah, it's been a, a, a very busy week for us. It was actually Micah's birthday on Monday. So we've got Micah's birthday on Monday, and then Josh and mine this coming week. And, and um, I, I, I didn't think that I would do anything for my birthday, just because between the two of them, it's enough <laughs> birthday celebrations in our household. So this was a very nice surprise. So thank you for the, for the people who put it together and organized it this morning. This week um, was also a busy week because I spent a couple of days out in Ringwood. Um, I'm part of the Australian Union Conference Executive, and we had two full days of meetings there. So I was driving over there in the mornings, and while I was driving over, um, I was listening to the radio, as I often do when I'm in the car, to catch up on the news, etc. And um, I was a little bit surprised to hear um, them announce that they were going to be um, sharing an interview with Kathy Oak, who uh, was a former counselor in Melbourne City. Now, the reason why that name caught my interest especially is because Kathy is someone I know personally. Um, she and Naomi and I were in the same mother's group eight years ago when we had uh, our, ba our first babies. Um, and so we had gotten to know each other then. And I haven't spoken to her for a very long time. But Kathy Oak um, was one of the women who accused the former Lord Mayor, uh, Mr. Doyle, of sexual misconduct in 2018. And for years, Mr. Doyle denied these allegations. And then um, just last, a few, a few months now, in March, um, an inquiry finalized their investigation and released a statement saying that they had found Mr. Doyle to have been guilty of having committed these acts. And then on Monday, this Monday, Mr. Doyle, for the very first time since his resignation, um, spoke publicly in an interview saying that he was sorry for his behavior. So then on Thursday, the ABC Radio was now interviewing um, Kathy to, to see her response to his public um, apology. And you know what? It was so, because I know her personally and because, you know, as a fellow woman, it was so painful to watch this interview, seeing the impact that this traumatic event had on this woman's life even three years later. Um, on her life, in her career, in her relationships, um, etc. And it actually was quite emotional for me. And one of the things that really, uh, if, that I felt on her behalf was indignation. Because even though Mr. Joel, you know, went on this public interview, he has ever, never actually personally apologized to any of the women. And even in the public interview, he didn't even mention these women by name. And so uh, one of the things that Kathy was, was saying was she was not really sure if the apology was even for her because um, they were asking her, do, do, you, you know, do you feel like it was, do you forgive him? It was it for you? And she was just saying, you know, I, I, can, I don't know what his intentions were, but um, he's never reached out to me, right? He, I'm not even sure if that was an apology for me or, or the other women because there were some other more uh, figures that um, have, have been in the press about it. 
And um, I went back and, and watched, after I watched the interview with her, I went back and, and um, listened to some of the interviews that Mr. Doyle did. And one of the things he said was, I look back and I see arrogance. I see self-importance. I see the inability to see how your behaviors are affecting somebody else. Ugly, ugly stuff. That was me. And that's also the many others that have been in the news and that have been in our lives who do things that range from a scale of sleazy to just criminal. And of course, you know, recently with, uh, with um, Brittany Higgins and her courage in coming out and, and talking about the um, horrible experience that she has gone through. And uh, that liberal staffer accused of rape by three women. Numerous former employees and colleagues have described that man as self-important. And so you hear this theme over and over again, these individuals who were self-important, who were filled with pride, who could not see how their behavior was affecting others. And it's this combination of power and privilege and pride that not always, but often lead to this type of consequences. And we see this repeated in history and current events over and over again. And one such figure in history that I want to talk about today was a man named Nebuchadnezzar, a historical figure. He was the greatest king of ancient Babylon during the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He ruled from 605 BC to 562 BC, and he successfully expanded the empire. So his father um, had, had you know, started it, and it was a lot smaller, but Nebuchadnezzar was an excellent military leader, and he conquered Egypt, he conquered Jerusalem, he conquered various places, and um, you can see there on the map the extent of the empire under his reign. He was also um, a, a, a great um, builder, well, not himself, but he sponsored great monuments to be built, including the Ashtar Gate, part of which was unearthed by German archaeologists between 1899 and 1917. And um, this is a picture of what it could have looked like because what they unearthed was just a sp small portion. A reconstruction of it can be found um, in Berlin and also in Iraq. This Ishtar Gate was more than 12 meters high and decorated with glazed brick reliefs that has over 120 lions, 575 dragons and bulls. So very astounding work. And on this gate, there's an inscription by Nebuchadnezzar where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, built this. And basically he says, I built this so that everyone would wonder, right, and gaze and just be astounded by the power and the wealth um, of Babylon and of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar is also attributed to having constructed the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonder, uh, wonders of the ancient world. Of course, we don't really know what it looked like. Um, it didn't last the, the time through time, but you know, from the descriptions of historians and 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 um, you know, ancient writers, we believe it looks basically it was a feat of engineering where they had tiers of you know trees and shrubs and vines and and. Uh, they say that it's because um, his wife was homesick for her country of Persia where there were mountains and trees, and so he built the hanging gardens for her, according to the story. Babylon was a center of culture and science and art and mathematics and commerce, and you know, we still have you know, so much that we have inherited from, um, from the time and region. And so I can understand why Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. I can understand why, as he walked 
at the top of the palace, and he saw the thick walls that were so wide that two chariots could ride side by side on top of them. I can understand why he looked at that and the Ishtar gate and the processional way and the temples and the gold, that he looked at all that and he said, I'm awesome, right? I can understand why he felt that way. But the problem was that with pride and privilege, we can become blind and deaf to the needs of others. And we feel entitled to our privilege. We earned this. We deserve this. Everyone else in my position does it. And we think that the rules don't apply to us, that they can be bent to our will. And those who are not in our positions, well, they just weren't worthy. They didn't work hard enough. They weren't clever or talented enough. And sadly, even the best of us are susceptible to the kind of pride and privilege that leads to the distortion of ethics that leads to the suffering of others. And according to the Bible, this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the Bible gives details of thousands of people, places, and events in history. And it's interesting how, you know, for a lot of times, there is an outside collaboration. Um, until there's an archaeological excavation or discovery. And um, so, for example, even with the Ishtar Gate and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, for many years there was nothing outside of the Bible that mentioned his name until the 1800s when they excavated uh, the ancient site and discovered all these things. And so um, archaeology continues to be a great source that confirms for me the reliability of the Bible. And... Um, when, and I'll give you another example, in the early 1900s when British archaeologists discovered and interpreted the Babylonian Chronicles, as it is named, um, it, and it narrates how Nebuchadnezzar conquered um, the Egyptian pharaoh, how he conquered Jerusalem, etc. This is now displayed in the British Museum. And as, we, as I have confidence in the Bible and I turn to the Bible to see what, what does the historical Nebuchadnezzar that we know of, what more does the Bible bring to us? And the Bible tells us uh, actually quite a bit. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in multiple places in the Bible, um, not only in the book of Daniel where he's featured prominently, but also in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, etc., even in the book of Esther. Now, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapters 1 to 4 is where he's featured very heavily. And I'm just going to give a brief summary to lead us to kind of where, we're to, where we, we want to be. Um, so Daniel 1, we find out that Daniel um, and the other noble uh, young men have been taken captive from Jerusalem, where Nebuchadnezzar had conquered, and they're taken captive to Babylon, where the brightest and the best are being retrained to be in the king's service. And we find out that Daniel and his friends, they make a commitment that they're very respectful and faithful to the king, but their ultimate priority and commitment is to God. And then we get to Daniel 2, and we find out that Nebuchadnezzar is, is worried about the future, right? Here's a man who has newly conquered, you know, lots of lands and has this great empire. But you would think that he'd be happy, but he's not. And isn't that often the case? When we have a lot, we actually worry more because we have that much more to lose. And so there's Nebuchadnezzar in his bed, worried about the future, worried about his kingdom, and then God gives him a dream. God cares about Nebuchadnezzar and reveals to him the future in a dream. Um, long story short, Daniel is the only one who is able to interpret that dream for him because God reveals it to Daniel. And that's a story for another time. But through that experience, Nebuchadnezzar has now in, met this God of heaven, 
who is able to, who cares about him personally, who has given him this personal dream. But Nebuchadnezzar is still very self-focused because in that dream, God had revealed to him this great statue and he had, and, and he had said, you are the head of gold, but after you will come another kingdom and, and that's represented by silver and then another kingdom will come represented by bronze and another kingdom will come. But when we get to Daniel 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't want his kingdom to end. He doesn't want his legacy to end. And so what he does is he, he, he makes, um, he constructs a, a, a golden statue from head to toe, right? Not just the head, to show that his legacy will last forever. His kingdom will last forever, 27 meters high. And he makes everybody, and this is also, um, we believe, looking at history, a, a time in his um, reign when there was a little bit of political unrest. And so he, he feels insecure. So he gets everybody to come. And he says, you must all worship this image, right? which represents basically worship to himself. And in Daniel 3, we find out that Daniel's three friends uh, respectfully, politely, but firmly refuse to worship the image. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well then, off you go into the fiery furnace. And they, they throw um, Shadrach, Mishael, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. But God does something yet again. And, and God, I believe, does this not only for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he does it for Nebuchadnezzar. What he does is he shows up in the fire. And instead of these three Hebrew young men, not young so anymore, but these men from getting burnt up, not only does God protect them, but he becomes visible to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there expecting the three men he has thrown in, you know, to burn up so that he can prove to everybody that, yes, he has complete control. Yes, you know, he's the ultimate king. And, and he's waiting for that moment to be able to triumphantly show his control and power when instead of burning up, he sees a fourth man in the fire. And he says, who is that? He looks like the son of God. And he orders then Shadrach, Mishael, and Abednego to come out. And when they come out, not a singe of smoke is on them. And the only things that have burnt off are the ropes that bound them. You would think that after this moment, Nebuchadnezzar might finally say, okay, you know, I'm not the king of kings, that there is someone greater than me. But he still cannot let go of his pride. And so we get to Daniel chapter 4. At the height of his wealth and power, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that makes him afraid. And he commands everyone to come and interpret the dream, but no one can or will. I think they were afraid to tell him what it meant, except Daniel. Daniel is the only one who's willing to tell him what this dream means. And this is the part I want to read to you. Daniel chapter 4, verses 20 onwards. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies, this is Daniel speaking, and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having a nesting place in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. Nebuchadnezzar's feeling pretty good, right? He was the head of gold, and now he's this beautiful tree that provides shelter for so many. Daniel says, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. But then your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump 
bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then he says, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel is reminding the king, king, you're, you are amazing, right? You are incredible. But... You are forgetting the poor. You're forgetting the oppressed. Your morality has become compromised by your privilege and power and pride. And he also reminds Nebuchadnezzar, hey, if you repent and change your ways, Daniel has a relationship with God and he knows God will have mercy on you and this thing that this judgment might not happen. And you know what? Think about it. The reason why I, I narrated Daniel's 1 through 3 is over years, God has been revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, right? God does not like to judge. He, he wants to give us mercy. But, but the reason why he gives judgment is because sometimes it takes drastic measures for us to learn the lesson that he wants us to learn. And over and over again, God had tried to show Nebuchadnezzar that God has a plan and that God cares for him. But over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say, no, it's my control, my power, my kingdom, my way, or you get killed. He's threatened people and executed people in Daniel chapter 2, or Daniel 1 and 2 and 3, right? Over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize that his actions of his deciding what is, what is best and... Uh, who gets to live or die, or who gets to be part of his privileged system. He doesn't understand that it created a system of oppression. Nebuchadnezzar needed one more lesson. And even after Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, God does not you know, bring about this drastic measure straight away. It actually says, as you read the rest of the story in Daniel chapter 4, verses 29 to 32, 12 months later, so a whole year goes by where God gives Nebuchadnezzar another year to change his ways, to realize what he's doing wrong. Twelve months later, as a king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, and it's so interesting because now it switches to the first person, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. So this is not just a story about someone. Now this is a, his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar learns to praise God rather than himself, to embrace humility and gratitude, to recognize that everything that he was given was not just for him to do whatever he wanted, but that it, they were given to him so that he could actually do good with it, to be a benevolent leader. You know, we may not build great statues of ourselves in the CBD and force everyone to worship it, but we still like to create projections of ourselves that are not true to life, true to scale, because we want others to like and admire us. There might not be a golden statue in the CBD, but there's plenty of homage to the glitter of power, position, and wealth that pressure us to value those things more than humility and service and character of integrity. And we prioritize people with, who possess power and position and wealth more than those who are disempowered and marginalized and poor. That's why a celebrity gets more attention than the homeless man on the streets, even though they have the same worth in God. And that is why we invest more time, more money, and effort into growing power and position and wealth than we do investing in the time and money and effort to grow in our relationship with God. From our focus on self and from our place of privilege, we complain and we judge and we justify our actions and choices. And we don't realize that there are people around us who are hurt and who are in need and who are Oppressed, not necessarily because of something we did directly or even intentionally, but because we simply don't care. And we forget that everything we have is from God. You know, the story of Nebuchadnezzar has inspired people throughout the centuries. There's, um, I believe, uh, Joseph Verdi wrote a whole opera about Nebuchadnezzar. And then in 2019, Kanye West decided... Um, let me go back. My slides have are slightly okay. It's all right. There's, there was a slide, but that's all right. Um, Kanye West, in 2019, decided that he was going to write an opera about Nebuchadnezzar because he think he thinks he he identifies uh, somehow with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the reviews of the opera were pretty bad, but the but the um, what it did do is that it generated a lot of talk about the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and his role in history and what the Bible says about him. And in one article in, in Forbes, um, the writer Chris Rambert, he, he actually tell, narrates the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible in this secular um, art, uh, news article. And then he says, overall, one macro takeaway from the story of Nebuchadnezzar is this. You may not think God had anything to do with your success until one day you realize God had everything to do with your success. After the first dream, Nebuchadnezzar respects God's wisdom. 
After the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar respects God's loyalty. And then after his period of madness and loss of title and humanity, he respects God's power. And it's only then that we see Nebuchadnezzar become a true believer. It's only after multiple messages from God, right? Multiple um, uh, revelations of God trying to show him that he cares, that God, God is powerful, that he has a plan, and that he wants Nebuchadnezzar to be a part of that plan. After years of that, and then only after physical and mental illness, where he's forced to realize that, yeah, he is vulnerable, that, that you know, life is not in his control, that Nebuchadnezzar finally journeys from that place of pride and pri privilege to one of humility and gratefulness. And whatever it takes, we need that paradigm shift. Every single one of us. And I say every single one of us because even though we, we do our best, we all have blind spots. We all have a part of our corner where self is more important. In 1961, um, Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University, conducted a famous uh, social experiment that today would be condemned as um, unethical because the, of the emotional distress it put the participants through. But in 1961, they didn't have all the ethical committee, and so they did this experiment that we can now look at. What happened was Stanley Milgram advertised um, in the newspaper for participants to take part in this study, and he said that this study is about learning. Participants were uh, brought in, and uh, when they came in, they were paired with someone, and then they would draw lots to see who would be the learner and who would be the teacher. Now, what the participant didn't know was that this draw was fixed, and so the, the participant was always going to be the teacher, and the learner was actually someone in the team who was going to be the actor. And they were told, um, they, they set it up so that and, and they met each other, the learner and teacher. They drew the law to, oh, you know, I'm the teacher or the learner. And then they would take the learner into the other room, and the teacher got to see this, and they would put electro um, wiring on the learner, and the teacher got to see what was happening. And what happened was they told the teacher that, um, who was then taken to the next room, that they would read a series of words, and the learner has to repeat the words in order. And if the learner got a, made a mistake, they would press a buzzer that would send a little electric shock to the learner. You can see why this would not be ethical today. <laughs> but in 1961, this is what they did. And um, they, they told the person, when the person gets it wrong, press the button. But the, if the person gets it wrong again, right, they would have to press the next button, which increases the voltage. And the voltage ranged from 15 volts, slight shock, little zap, you know, to 375 volts, which, and which were severe, all the way up to 450 volts, which was fatal. And it was labeled. This, if you get to 450, lethal. So then they did all this setup, explained all the rules, and then there was, the, uh, there was another person, and if you go back, you see their learner, teacher, and there was another person, the E, the experiment um, facilitator, who was there, and he was in the room with the, um, with the teacher, reminding them of the rules and just being in that room. Um, and what happened was, the reason why Milgram set this up in the first place was, this is after World War II. And some of the questions they wanted to know was, you know, why do people do unethical things that they know are wrong? Um, and they wanted to learn more about obedience and authority, et cetera. And they, they put this experiment together, and they hypothesized that most people 
would stop the experiment once the voltage got very strong. What they discovered was shocking to everyone. What they discovered was that even though the participants did show discomfort at continuing, they, um, you know, sometimes would stop. Every, all, all of them at one point questioned whether they should continue. Some of them became very uncomfortable and started laughing. You know how, have you ever noticed that when you get really uncomfortable, sometimes you laugh? And there was definite distress, some of the participants. But what they discovered is that 65 of the participants administered enough volts to kill the other person. And, and they had the um, tape recording on the other room because, you know, the other person wasn't actually um, connected to the electricity. But they had tape recording of the other person screaming during this process, right? Despite that, 65% administered enough volts to kill the other person. And get this, 100% administered shocks of at least 300 volts. This experiment was repeated multiple times in various places around the world, and the results were pretty much the same. No one insisted that the experiment be terminated. No one left the room to check on the victim. Stanley Milgram observed, ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible, destructive process. And that's what I want us to think about today. What that word privilege means, and we are all privileged because we're here in a warm, dry space on a rainy, cold day. And most of us don't have to worry about what we're going to eat later on and how we're going to sleep tonight. We are all in positions of privilege, and some of us more than others. Some of us have more power. Some of us have more wealth. Some of us have been given more opportunities. And even there's nothing wrong with that. It's a blessing. But when we think we got there on our own or when we think that we're entitled to it or when we forget that unconsciously, right, unintentionally, without any ill will on our part, we may be contributing to a system or a culture or a chain reaction that is actually hurting someone else. And, and, and like I said, if we are in positions of greater power and privilege, that potential increases. That responsibility increases. And rather than becoming defensive, I want to invite us to humbly confess that, yeah, we are all guilty of having been agents of pain to some degree, of having blind spots, of not being grateful for what we have, of thinking that we have earned what we have of keeping things to ourselves instead of sharing for fear of not having enough for ourselves. It's time to humbly listen to the messages that God repeatedly sends our way, right? And to listen to the voices of those whom we have dismissed before, to listen to that conscience of the Holy Spirit tuning us to his word. It's time to humbly believe that God is the King of Kings, that he has given us everything and that he can change our hearts to journey from that place of blindness to the place of pride, to the place of selfishness and the place of indifference. Because I think that's personally where a lot of us are. It's not that we're malicious. We just are indifferent sometimes to the needs of others. And, and God can help us journey from that towards Christ-centered humility and empathy and inclusion. Just as it did for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went from demanding worship 
to leading worship. Daniel chapter 4 records his public testimony where he says in 4 chapter, uh, verse, chapter 4 verses 1 to 3, King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth. This is his message from the grave, right? This is his message, you know, 2,600 years later to us. He says, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And let me read again his closing words where he says, now I, oh, sorry, sorry, Ben. <laughs> messing it all up where he says now i nebuchadnezzar praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble when's the last time you praised god i'm not talking about coming to church i'm not talking about reading the bible i'm talking about praising god the way that you praise someone when they do a great job or the way that you praise someone when it's their birthday, right? The way that you praise someone you love and admire and respect. When's the last time you just praised God for how good he is and all his character and all his mercy? When's the last time you told someone how great he is, what he has done for you, right? When, when, we, when we feel the mercy of God and love of God and the grace of God fill our hearts through praise, we can't help but share, right? We can't help but say, hey, you know, when something good happens, we're eager to share. We're eager to tell someone, look, look at what this person did for me or, or hey, look, look, listen to this story. And when we're filled with gratefulness and acknowledgement of what God has done for us, right, we are willing to share with someone else about him. When's the last time you thanked him from the bottom of your heart for everything in your life? This is what worship is. Thanksgiving and praise and sharing your testimony. Worship isn't just listening to someone else. It, it's, that can be a part of it, but it's about your response to him. And it is that, it's that kind of worship, that's worship in spirit and truth that's going to be the antidote to pride and the abuse of privilege. And it is my prayer that as we worship God in spirit and truth, as we worship him privately and publicly here together as a community, that he will open our eyes and teach us how to really live, to love, and to lead with humility, with empathy, and with wisdom. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Journey, Father, I confess, and we confess, that for so much of the time, our focus is on ourselves. And Father, we need at this time this reminder that it's actually you who have given us everything we have. And we're really grateful. And Father, I'm so grateful for this church community. I'm so grateful for this church space that you have provided for us for seven years. We're so grateful for the future plans you have for this church. We're so grateful for the people you've brought into this community. Every single one has, is here because of you, because you've worked in their hearts. We're grateful for the homes we have, 
the clothes we have, the food we have, the family and friends who support us, and so much more. Father, help us to be grateful, to number the ways that you have truly been merciful. Help us to praise your name and to sing of your mercies. And Father, as a result of that acknowledgement and that gratitude and realizing that we are not number one, through that process, Father God, help us to then see that others have needs, that others have been hurt, that others can thrive if, if we were to care. Open our eyes, Lord, and help us as a church community to, to reach the people in Melbourne and help us as individuals to, to see those around us that and ask and, and, and realize maybe for the first time that our actions and choices have hurt them and that we can do better through you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the example and story of Nebuchadnezzar that reminds us that um, you are able to transform hearts. Thank you for that hope and promise. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.